As I was welcomed into Emma Bridgewater's studio in London, I knew this conversation would be a very special one. I don't mind saying I was a little nervous as I made my way across London to record this podcast. Because personally, Emma is a huge inspiration to me. And despite never having met her, I have followed her story for many years. As a 28-year-old setting up Not On The High Street, there were very few women I could look to for inspiration, but Emma was most certainly one of them. 35 years since founding her company, the Emma Bridgewater brand has gone from strength to strength and now turns over more than £20 million a year and employs over 300 people. As well as sharing her journey to success, Emma discussed her inspirational mother, her philosophy as a female entrepreneur, as well as reviving a dying industry in Stoke. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. It was such an honour and personal moment for me to stop and smell the roses. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Emma. Wow, what a complete honour to be sitting with you today, surrounded by what I believe is your spring collection that no one else has seen. Yeah, you're getting a sneak peek. I'm getting the sneak peek. Um, You have been the ultimate inspiration ever since I started out as a woman in business. Your eye for design is superior and the way you have revived an industry in Britain is completely remarkable. And I know that you've led the way for so many other kitchen table startups and female entrepreneurs, and you certainly did for me. So thank you. I am beyond excited um, to have the opportunity to listen to your story firsthand today. So thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, well, that's such a lovely, lovely lot of things you've just said about me. Thank you. Well, no, thank you. So I would love to begin by talking a little bit about your upbringing. You had the an idyllic, colourful, almost bohemian sounding childhood. I think by any standards, fairly bohemian. <laughs> yes, but with the but magnificent sounding family breakfasts. Whilst reading your book, I was drooling over the descriptions of the toasted homemade bread with lashings of golden marmalade. It made my mouth water constantly. What was your childhood like? Can you describe it for us? Well, it it was very vivid. And that bread that I described there, toasting and um, eating too much of, was made by my mum. And she was she was a right hippie, you know, before her time. She she married in the 50s and and her friends say, oh, you know, it's all quite mahogany and formal to begin with. But when she and my father parted, she just sort of dove into the 60s. She seemed to see it coming and it suited her perfectly. And she sort of left the sort of formality of the 50s behind. And she arrived in Oxford in 1967 or 68, something like that. 
she had a ball. She had such a good time. And I think it was that that bathed my childhood and my brother and sister. And then she had two more daughters by her second marriage in Oxford. It just bathed all of us in this very rosy golden light. And I think it was her happiness that's the key. And she was most, I mean, informal doesn't even begin to cover. Her house was where everyone liked to be. It was extremely, yeah, just magnetic. And it was a mess and she didn't have, they were always short of money. And that was just so unimportant. And I don't think she ever spent any money on that first house, which was the ground floor of a big North Oxford house that was back in the 60s regarded as a kind of, now they're highly desirable. Then they were a bit of a kind of creaky, gothic disaster area that people thought, oh God, I don't want that. You know, it's going to be so cold and damp. And indeed it was, but it wasn't. It was just lovely. Gosh. Would you say that your mother was quite a strong influence on you growing up? And do you, was that where your entrepreneurial spirit came from? Okay, she was a huge influence, but she definitely had not one entrepreneurial thing inside her. The entrepreneurial thing comes from my dad, whose very successful publishing career, I kind of lived moment by moment. And he went public while I was at university in London. So I couldn't ever say I wasn't warned about how tough a business can be and breaking through. You know, I really had known how hard he'd worked. You'd watched it firsthand. Yes. And he had great determination and and real tenacity. And I recognised that in myself. So I've got a sort of funny, slightly unusual mixture of, of a business instinct. I have from him a very, very clear idea that it's all about the follow through. Don't take too long about the decision, make the decision and get on with it. And having found my path by accident, the sticking to it, I think, that I learned from him is very crucial. But the inspiration came from the way she lived and what she sort of stood for, which was don't sweat the small stuff, have a lovely time. And Mm. it's funny just how kind of pervasive that atmosphere has been. And that's been my touchstone thinking about her kitchen. Yes. That's how I kind of centre. I'm going to touch on her more because she's such an important part of your life. But I love that mix. So, oh, you know, you can read countless business books and it's all about the perfectionism, et cetera, et cetera. And we've got all modern words for it nowadays yeah. and all about, you know, the business lessons. But it is the follow through. It's, it's, You've got to be so dogged, haven't you? You really, really, really do. You really do. I mean, do. I sometimes think it's, a, it's not an attribute, it's a condition. <laughs> think my husband might say the same. What were your passions at school? Because my feeling is that you must have been a creative child or a creative being. And did you have any early signs of either entrepreneurism yourself or that it was going to be in a creative field? Okay, I'll tell you an embarrassing secret, which I'm not sure if I've told anyone else, which was I remember making a collage of flowers on a large piece of pink paper for my stepmother and signing it, Emma Bridgewater, in case I'm famous one day. <laughs> and I was about nine or something like that. You did know. And I can, I can picture the thing. I don't know what that was about. But what was I like? I was quite dreamy. I was very good at hiding. My next sister down has learning difficulties. I mean, God, she's amazing. She's so, I sometimes think how incredibly brave she is it's so much harder for her but it was also quite complicated for me and for my brother and in the sort of aftermath of divorce I did I've always done 
a lot. I've spent a lot of my time with her. So I was also quite good in a sneaky sort of way, finding hiding places and realised that if I was reading a book when they found me, <laughs> they go, oh, okay, and turn around and tiptoe away. So that right. was good. So I read voraciously. I, I spent a huge amount of my life in books from childhood. So sort of dreamy, romantic. Creative? Yes. Do you know, I think it was going to be words for me. I was one of those kids who had no idea what I was doing. I blundered through school. It was a good school and they kept the, you know, the pressure on. So the pace was quite useful. I was devoted absentee. I mean, I, seemed, I was quite a naughty school girl, but I quite liked my school as well. And I had some very good teaching, but I did art subjects. I fought my dad who I wanted to do art in the sixth form. And he said, no, do academic subjects and try and go to university. And if you then want to go to art school after that, of course, knowing I wouldn't have the patience to hang around. And he kind of, I think, I think that was good advice for me. And it kind of built up my creativity. There was a sort of bit of a volcano in there. But I loved my sort of life in books. And I read English literature at London University. And I thought I was going to go into publishing. So the whole pottery escapade was an accident and it it, it wasn't remotely inevitable. That's in, what in, I'd have done. Inevitable. Your journey started from a want for a product, didn't it? And because it, it, it didn't exist, which is often the way with so many best ideas. It's, yeah. it's solving a need rather than just, you know, creating something. Sahar Hashimi, who founded Coffee Republic, said on this podcast that women make the best entrepreneurs as they are the ultimate consumers and find the products that sort of don't exist yet. And for those yeah. who haven't heard it before, could you tell the story of how your idea for your pottery came about, the gift idea that didn't exist in the market? I think it's a golden thread. There are there are a couple of really important things about the business, but I have realised in thinking about it and, and trying to work out sort of what's worked and why it's worked. The beginning is very indicative in that I was looking for a present to tell my mum how much time I love her. That impulse of of searching for the thing to say just that... That's what we all do all the time. And I, I didn't know, you know, I was just being me, not doing anything else her birthday, probably tomorrow, I, I doubt, or even today. I mean, you know, I, I was not, not much of a forward planner and had one of those, you know, marvellous moments that you dream about. And in a sense, I think I had, I mean, I was knowingly looking for a business idea, but actually since my teens, I think I'd known I longed for a vocation, you know, mm -hmm. for, the, for the lights to come on. And it just happened while I was thinking about her and thinking two cups and saucers, something that says we're going to sit down and talk because I was 23 at the time. And that's what I really wasn't doing with her. I was running around in London, I was spending too much money, doing anything I could think of. And my cousin and I had a catering business and, you know, I was sort of any old odd jobbing, quite often sofa surfing. It was quite rackety. And she was both concerned and annoyed. I knew that wasn't going to change immediately, but I wanted something that said, you know, I really love you. You know, I love sitting down at the kitchen table talking to you more than anything else. The cup and saucer turned into a mug, but that is what two mugs denote, is that mm. thing. And in a china shop, I, I looked around thinking, which ones will I choose? And I realised there was nothing to choose because the industry wasn't making it and it had no knowledge of her kitchen, 
there just wasn't anything that spoke to a messy, colourful, mismatched kind of a kitchen. And I thought, well, this is really curious. I think I'm going to have to make that stuff. And I didn't know what I was thinking or doing, but really I could really see, I could already see a dresser like her kitchen dresser in that china shop and that it would be a kind of swirl of colour and that it wouldn't be about matching sets. And that was it. I was completely bitten. I obviously had to come up with a an immediate, but I didn't start the company in time to generate her birthday presents, not that year anyway. But that was the beginning. I, I could, having seen it, that vision just kind of drew me like a vision. I didn't know, you know, what on earth it meant. And um, I asked a grown-up friend who I'd worked for off and on, and he, he had a very 80s thing, a graphic design office. Graphic designers were, were so cool in 1983. And I asked his advice and he literally patched his pockets and found a business card and said, oh, I was working with this guy quite recently. It's a very, very, well, you'll enjoy meeting him. And he's a very good model maker. And I said, it's Stoke, it was, I sort of dimly remembered Stoke-on-Trent, the Potteries, geography lessons. He said, yep, off you go to Euston, you know, draw what you get get some drawings down and take them to see Sam and he'll, he'll, um, that may be how you start. It's um, amazing because it was 1984, I think. And yet you could only get patterned Port Miriam ceramics or um, Denby or classic Wedgwood, uh, none of which you felt suited your mother's dresser, none of which was colourful, as you said, fun and easygoing. So it's, it, it's quite amazing, isn't it, when you think about that was your backdrop. It was just a vision that you had mm. that you you went after. And I remember when I, you know, the knot on the high street came up as an idea and I couldn't stop thinking about it. It almost, as you said, it, beca- it became, I became There's Some obsessed. sort of obsession. And then, for me, then there was a sort of double-double effect of not really not very long after. This all happened very quickly. I mean, her birthday is in August and that autumn, definitely, I... I was in Stoke and and planning the first four shapes and and taking delivery in a few weeks, really. It it was sort of, it's very weird thinking about it now. And there is nothing like the blissful ignorance of 23. And I doubt that I'd have the guts to do now what I did did. then. Having said that, now my children are grown, perhaps I would again. I think the the sort of um, responsibilities of domestic life, startups that people achieve in that period, I think, hugely heroic, really bold and mm. doubly mm. commendable yes. because it is, you are taking an enormous leap into the unknown. But I didn't, at 23, I just thought, mm. what have I got to lose? It I didn't really agree. strike me. But the double-double was getting to Stoke a few, you know, not long after that revelation in a china shop. I was bouncing across Stoke-on-Trent towards this nefarious address of Chemical Lane to meet my destiny. But I kind of, I had no foreknowledge of what I was going to see when I got off the train, which was a post-industrial city. I mean, the whole thing was the wheels were really flying off in all directions. And and there was a race to Portugal first, a lot of the potteries went to, and then f- further and further and further east in, in search of cheaper prices. But I was ignorant, young, and I was really, really staggered by what I saw and by the glamour of that. The, of the the names that haunt the mm-hmm. city is Spode mm. and Copeland and 
Wedgwood and um, Masons and Furnivals, all those kind of really lovely ha- household gods. And the the fact that their ghosts sort of floated over it and seemed to be kind of all disappearing. And there were an awful lot of beaten up, sort of closed down, chained up factories. I just knew I needed to get stuck in there. I kind of fell in thrall to what the place had been and wanting to put some something back into it, bring some part of it back to life. I really hated seeing the aftermath, I guess, of, of no, industrial decline. Clo- closure of historic importance. And, you know, I can't actually quite imagine what you must have saw. Um, well, particularly given that I, you know, I, I'd lived in in the soft south. And I do think there's a shocking way in which it's all too easy for... Well, it's strange. This is a very small island, and yet we don't really know it very well. We know our patch. And an awful lot of the influencers and decision makers tend not to expose themselves much to the trickier places where people are really struggling. Stoke's been, it's particularly poignant because it's been the purveyor of tableware to the world, you know, big, big name on the world stage. And I think that makes it particularly traumatic. But you know, some of our industrial, old industrial heartlands are struggling with perennial problems that that I feel, okay, I'm going to say the Brexit word. I think there's a real, there's a whole lot of real reasons behind that referendum result. And the thing I most regret about the time we're in now is that we're not talking about them. We're just mm. worrying about the nice, the extraordinary um, constitutional details. It's only the human stories that matter and nobody's talking about them, not in any meaningful way. And uh, I feel really sad about that. It's a mistake. I going back to your your crusade and your vision. I love the description of the pottery you wanted to create: the bulbous, the chunky, the swooshing shapes. You said you needed the perfect bowl for yogurt and honey, lentil <laughs> soup, apple and crumble and custard, the perfect dish to serve a tomato salad, mashed potatoes or egg mayonnaise, or to put on the window still full of ripe plums. From reading um, the book, I realised you must have this passion for food as much as pottery. Very greedy. Yeah, well, (laughs) you want to elevate food, almost show the beauty in it, especially if it's homegrown or homemade, almost putting the food on display like a shelf in a gallery. And that's what I feel the beauty of Emma Bridgewater is, not just the quality, the fun, but the character. And it was the love of food that almost shone through. But going back to Stoke-on-Trent, you had your shapes and the pottery you wanted to make and you had created these cardboard prototypes and drawings. Then you needed to obviously get it manufactured and you're talking about getting off that train and you're wonderfully naive, almost walking into the ghost town. God, so goggle-eyed. I've I've got these nice little cardboard prototypes here. Would anyone (laughs) like to make them? (laughs) A skilled design trade has existed in obviously that area, like you were saying, since the 12th century, with all of the names that you were talking about. And just doing a a bit of research, you know, in its heyday, up to 27,000 people were directly employed in the factories. Um, And think of the supply chain behind that. And uh, after the uh, manufacturing, event. You know, it was huge. It was also a coal mining city. That's the the slightly unknown bit about Stoke. And so the closure of the coal mines was as traumatic because you needed tons of coal to fire a kiln. I see. I didn't know that. The industry went into this deep decline between 1960s, as you say, and 1980s through the increased mechanisation and outsourcing to the Far East. 
Can you just tell me the story of then, did you just, you knocked on the door to, is it Sam? And what? And Terry just, had given me a business card. Yeah. I, I, I rang the number given and said, could I make an appointment to see him maybe next week and bring some drawings and talk about uh, modelling them? And sportingly, he said, yeah, I'll see you on Wednesday or whatever it was. And off I trotted. And I was very, very, very lucky to find him. He was a, is a marvellous craftsman. Um, he then cast me a few of each, a few dozen of each shape and biscuit fired them. And I took them away and experimented with decorating them. Uh, learned how to dip and, you know, glaze, dip them in glaze and fire them in a kiln that we set up in the bathroom in Brixton. <laughs> Health and <laughs> safety said- to the fore. <laughs> so you set up your first kiln in the bathroom? Yes. <laughs> because I, I had no intention of doing anything but make the samples. I, right. I was very, very, very clear. I didn't want to craft pottery, hadn't been to art school, felt very shaky on, on that whole front. You know, not an, ex, not an expert yes. in any of that. In fact, I've only recently, I've been having a lovely time learning to throw, but spending all of two days throwing, but um, really, really loving breaking that duck and finding that that whole other side of pottery is just as lovely I mean it's really lovely but yes but for me it was the sort of ghostly factories of Stoke that gelled that very clearly for me but I was completely hooked on the city and you know just as the manufacturers of Stoke-on-Trent had gone abroad the sort of um received wisdom at the time was you'll be outsourcing your design and marketing setup surely that's what you can do I can see I can see what you're saying it all feels right but don't touch the factory and I really, really definitely wanted to get stuck in in the factory. I just love that. I and, just, and it was a bit, thank God, you know? Yeah, well, a- absolutely. And going back, you had these samples. So you you started your design. You started your patterns. You know, you didn't know what they were going to be. You know, that that was... Well, yeah, it, it was all a bit vague. And it was a bit co-ate. vague until was, you probably put that paint onto that Well, until I started playing with... Uh, what happened was I'd... Um, the guy I lived with... He and his brother were inveterate mudlarkers. They, what they would love to do often at night or whenever it was, you know, a low tide on the Thames, clamber over the razor wire and comb the foreshore for pottery shards. For some reason, they were both really taken with that and they would spread them on the windowsills. They were both quite knowledgeable about pottery and quite a lot of the shards were spongeware and I was curious about it and my boyfriend Alex's older brother gave me quite a good sort of lecture about spongeware. That felt like me. That felt like, I don't know what this is, but I think this is what I'm... And for those who don't know what that is... It's very, very simple printing by hand using a cut sponge. In fact, the Irish version often was decorated with a cut potato um, Got you. Okay. Closer to hand than a sponge, so now I, can I imagine. Picture it. Yes. So, really, it's about simple motifs repeated in a pleasing way. There was nobody making it, so I had to kind of invent it again from scratch. And occasionally, someone would come out of the woodwork and say, "Oh, I think they used to make that up at so you know so and so." And it was absolutely meant for the for the for the cheapest market. It was probably sold at the back of the factory, you know, back door of the factory on market stalls, and it was well below the radar of collectors and curators. At that time, there was very there was nowhere I could go to find any to look at until I met two fantastic antique dealers of partnership, Robert and Josie Ann Young, who, who are still trading on Battersea Bridge Road. And I was selling the samples I didn't want to keep 
on a market stall in the Jubilee Market in Covent Garden. On that that first winter, it was very cold and um, I was very hungry. And um, <laughs> Josie Ann pounced on me and said, what are you doing making spongeware? And we became very good friends straight away. And I did quite a lot of stuff for their shop. But the best thing was she showed me, she and Robert showed me their extraordinary collection of spongeware. So I began to understand some. It was odd. I mean, the whole thing was so sort of, and I went in literally on a shard and found that whole world of lovely folk pottery. Totally exactly right, but a technique that suited my rather limited draftsman skills, but my strong kind of confident sense of myself as a designer, which is what I said earlier about the sort of tamped down, waiting, lurking, artistic kind of um, enthusiasm. that was coming oh, yeah. was, was this. You slightly wince when you called yourself designer because of course you didn't I didn't trade that didn't trade and you didn't yeah. have that permission I suppose isn't exactly it that, that permission but now that is what you are and what would you now say looking back makes a great piece of design because you know so many small businesses are listening and have you sort of worked out what what your viewpoint of design is oh I mean I, I think that Morris's edict about useful and beautiful uh, that'll take you kind of a long, long way in life. And I believe in functionality. I find it hard to make things that are purely decorative. I want it to be useful and functional and pleasing. I think at the heart of it is a passion to communicate something. So that feeling right at the beginning of I wanted to say to mum, I love your kitchen, I love you, I love being here. That's the impulse inside the way I design. And we definitely retain that instinctively and, and sort of consciously that you're thinking about the customer and what she's doing and what her life's like and, and you know, what she's going to do with this piece and why is she going to buy this, not that. Or if she's already bought all of those things, what she need now? This Christmas, what's it going to feel like? Or Halloween um, this year, how am I feeling it? And what are the issues and the, the anniversaries and the... So that you find the things that resonate with you that you want to tell other people about. The emotional connection. Through... I think design is about making an emotional mm. connection mm. through an object. Something speaks to you, doesn't it? And, it? and perhaps this is the reader in me. You know, I love the connection. As somebody said, it's when you, you're reading a book published maybe hundreds of years ago and suddenly they're talking about a feeling you know so well. It's like that author has put mm. his or her hand out and you have this extraordinary, almost palpable connection with them. Well, design's the same process, I think. It, it's reaching out. God, what a beautiful description. What a beautiful, it's made my eyes watery, actually. <laughs> Tell me about those, but well, this is going to make our eyes watery. Tell me about those early days of actually starting it, getting out there. I am imagining tough. Well, as I said, there were some quite hungry <laughs> yeah, years, moments. but well... My friends was, and family were incredibly supportive. Someone, a very, very old close friend, recently gave me back somewhere that I had forced him to buy. And it's absolutely wonderful having to think from that very, those first few months. And um, I guess if I think about it, I think of the, the enormous support that I had then and have always had. I mean, you know, nobody survives on their own brilliance and resilience it's it's luck. It was a really good moment for it. I remember being cold at Jubilee at the Jubilee Market, but the thing that kept me warm then and through that period and kind of always does 
is the the enthusiastic response, the fact that it was the right thing at the right time, that it was a missing thing. Mm. And that's immense good fortune, you know, to, to if the time if your timing's right. But I do say to people, if you haven't got customers, well, first put your idea at risk of sale. I get annoyed when people Take come back to me. Take your products out for get, risk of sale. Put them out. Somehow get, get, put together a trestle table at the end of your drive or whatever it is you're going to do and see whether people like you, your thing. And if they're not elbowing each, out of the, each other out of the way to get hold of that one, you may have to go back to the drawing board. There's got to be a sense of a feeding frenzy. And even though it was cold and not always totally successful in the Jubilee market months, there was a strong sense of people snapping it up. I remember a friend of my mum's, when she saw some of the first samples, saying, crikey, that looks, I mean, that looks real. <laughs> it had a kind of, because of the the, the Stoke connection, you know. Yeah, it had Sam was Yes, Sam yeah. was doing a really lovely job. They were they were well made. And and instead of them being... Um, a bit flimsy or yes, your startup, they had to, sort of prototype Felicity yes. was right. They did look real. They were yes. real. What a great description. Tell me that... She actually that, swore quite voluminously when she said it. <laughs> <laughs> the F word was deployed. I remember knowing that she was a teensy weensy bit disconcerted by it. Whereas my mum would just yawn and say, oh, lovely, darling, lovely. Is that, what is that? I can't quite make it out. And do clear the table because um, because because supper's ready now. <laughs> that kind of thing. And she was very, very <laughs> kind of good at keeping one grounded. And um, uh, she was a funny mixture of very inspiring and also rather, rather sceptical which, I don't know, it's always suited me. It meant the Stoke-on-Trent was an open book to me, that yes. that kind of not impressed Not impressed thing. Um, that thing. they have yeah. just to such an impressive degree. She, um, she'd schooled me in. Each week I sit down with a cup of tea and write my weekly Friday email, Holly's Desk Notes. I share everything I've been up to, thinking about or working on in the past week. I genuinely love it. And it's a real moment in my week when I stop, sit down and put pen to paper. You'll often find recommendations for my favourite small businesses and what they create, details of places or events I've been to or think you'd love, recent articles from our advice hub, the latest Holly Loves collections, or perhaps sharing what's been happening in my world outside of Holly & Co., not only that, but by joining our email community, you'll be the first to hear about all the exciting updates throughout the year. Be that our shop independent campaigns, our tours across the country, and let's not forget the independent awards. If you'd love to hear our latest news, advice and inspiration, follow the link in the description below to join our newsletter community or head on over to holly.co where you can easily sign up. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. So tell me, so from that market stall to then, you know, stop me if I've got this wrong, but the first year the company turned over £30,000, I read. Yeah, probably. I can't um, remember. And it was 2009. Tiny amounts. But, you know, it increased to 8 million to then 11 million to 2010, employing 180 people. So, in a relatively short space of time, or I always think it's taken forever. 
Okay. But but yes, I mean, we are now about 20 million turnover or something like, and we employ about 350 people. And, you know, we're making, getting on for a couple of million pieces a year. The difficulty with a, a disappearing industry is that we have to keep, we have to keep growing, you know, we, we, to sustain our own training program, for example. You know, we, there's not much to feed off locally anymore. Tell me then, so from that, what were the big moments in those startup years? Was it getting a deal with a, um, a department store? Was it getting your products stocked in? You know, if you think about, if you look back to, uh, you know, and then the wheel starts turning, doesn't it, in, in the latter years? But, you know, in those beginning years, what were those tipping points? You are, oh, I, I'm not sure about the tipping points, but it, it's definitely true that it's really, really flying by the seat of your pants. Basically, until your turnover is sufficient to start to employ the people who you really need to do those jobs. But until that time, you're trying to do them all yourself and you're kind of grabbing onto anyone you can find to help you. And that's that's exhausting. A lot of it happened very fast at the beginning because I think my energy was was probably quite considerable. But the reception it met was really inspiring you went straight to shops? You went straight well, to... Yeah, I, I put together a sample collection. I photographed it, made a little sheet with and stuck, you know, printed 120 copies of the photograph. It was the old days, 35mm film and all that. A4 sheet. And I wrote a little paragraph that sat, you know, neatly under the... See, I was interested in graphic design <laughs> in a nice typeface that sat underneath, occupied the same space underneath the photograph about what spongeware was and price list on the back. And put together a mailing list of about 120 shops from what I knew, shops I knew, what I found in the back of magazines. Posted those out with a handwritten postcard saying, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to call you in the next few days. Did that. Most of those 120 people ordered. And the ones that didn't said, you've got us wrong, we're a craft gallery, but you you should try so-and-so over the road. And I learned kind of on the hoof just every time you're talking to someone, I mean, if, if you've got the wrong person and they don't volunteer that, ask them who on their street I should be talking to. You know, my first VAT return, absolute nightmare, trouble from the VAT office. I asked them to send someone to help me. I mean, in, a, in despair. And they did. And, you know, the, often the setbacks are your opportunity to make another breakthrough. But the spectacular success of that first mailing, I, did, I went to see all of them and I was going to charge them twice what Sam was going to charge me. And I reckoned if I could make half of them pay on the nail, 28 days, I could pay him on 30 days. I mean, it was it was so rackety. <laughs> and I was my own, you know, I was taking the orders and, del- and then renting a van and delivering the orders. What did Sam orders. think? He just thought, it, you know, here's some cash. Hello. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, crazy risk. Um, we had, you know, terrible things going wrong. And I remember being asked to go to Harrods and make the display. They'd got in a special dresser for me to do the thing on. And while I was making it all look lovely, the fatal sound, ping, 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 of the glaze popping. The firing had gone wrong spectacularly and the glaze was crazing as I held them. And um, I had to say to the buyer, I've got to take all this away. <laughs> You know, so there were terrible moments, and then there was a. I had a very good relationship with the, the buyer at the General Trading Company, which at the time was a very good sort of half club, half shop. Is where Tiffany. It was where Tiffany's is on the, yeah. exactly, and the China buyer there was hugely 
supportive and helpful and told me about trade fairs and is still a really good friend. She's a completely wonderful woman. And it snowballed very quickly. And so I was, and I hadn't until somewhere well after my first trade fair, so not quite a year of trading, but getting towards a year of trading, I hadn't written a business plan and I hadn't actually made a plan with the bank. And I'd been, I trained them really well. I'd always been overdrawn. I mean, I'd, I'd regularly <laughs> overdrawn well beyond the limit and I'd always come back into credit. I mean, I was quite right, good at okay. getting a lucrative waitressing job and getting sorted out again. And then I got hauled in to say, hang on, what's going on here? And it was no longer sort of Threshers and Fiorucci. It was De Miller Limited in Stoke-on-Trent. And he was absolutely appalled and shocked and terrified at what was going on. I was literally at that stage trading through a current account. And again, you know, I said to him, well, will you help me with the business plan? But it was a whole lot easier writing a business plan with several months of trading. Yes. And also, you know, it's it's norm- my, my, my experience, it's normally only the banks that would need the business plan rather than anybody else, isn't it? Yeah, what is a business plan? Yeah, what is it? I mean, now, at this, later on in your life, it's, it's a sort of, um, it's a team effort and it's how you kind of work out, you know, what you will believe. Gosh, it's an amazing story. I read that you didn't necessarily, though, call yourself a businesswoman. And I know that the word entrepreneur didn't really feel right to use. I would have never called myself an entrepreneur when I started out. I might have called myself a businesswoman, but I think only when other people start giving you these names do you start to almost accept it. Think, oh, yes. And, it, or if you get awarded it, you think, oh, well, OK, if that's what you think. It just didn't feel comfortable. And I was building something that I was very passionate about and within tech. And I was talking to you earlier about, you know, I hadn't the foggiest. Why do you think that was that you didn't see yourself necessarily as a businesswoman. Was it now we have nice good words for it, don't we? Imposter syndrome, or was it the language? I think it was. There was a lot of that going there, on, or the woman, or was it a woman in a man's world? What do you think it was? Do you know? I think I did have an instinct about promoting the brand and my name, but when it came to the business side of it, I think I did feel like an imposter. So I, I never really knew how to understand, sort of, I, I couldn't feel how to describe myself. I usually make a joke of it and say, you can call me a dirty industrialist or a filthy industrialist or, you know, a factory owner. Because in a sense, that's been the central challenge and the biggest, best, proudest bit of it for me. Because when I said earlier, there's the, the, that, that first impulse behind the business, giving my mum a present... I said there are other threads and I do believe that the traditions, the sort of rich accumulation of skills and knowledge and attitudes, precisely the, the, the bundle that was being set at naught and um, cast aside for, for a cheap version, that absolutely extraordinary, significant wealth, such a sort of big part of our national culture, being able to tap into that it feels like the thing that had least value at the time has been of the most value to me. And that constantly thrills me. The, the terrible business of, of people being forced to go out to Indonesia or wherever and teach people to do their job and then go home to be a taxi driver. Mm. When I think about that, it makes me very, very, very angry on their behalf. But being able to put it right in a tiny way. And so demonstrably, what we do is very traditional. It's extremely analogue. It gives so much pleasure to see that the old ways still have total currency and that 
there's 40,000 or so visitors that we have every year. I'm not quite sure we manage to fit all of them on a factory tour, but a lot of them do go around the factory. And you see, you know, it does reduce grown men to tears, particularly if their working life kind of had something recognisably like that. And it, you know, it's all been swept away in mm. favour of outsourcing and mechanisation and... When I look at how fast-paced we are and I understand that digitalization and we've got AI and we have all of these sorts of scary things, things coming at us. Scary things coming at us and it has its place as well for those who, you know, when well, we yeah, look at the exciting, you know the but... careers coming up in by 2030 80% of them have don't exist yet. So there's all wonderful things coming along, but this what you're just mentioning there is this heritage of skill of his history of mm, culture mm. of the intangibles in a sense yes brought together and at the time it was quite functional they had that history they had that knowledge and it could help you now looking back as you say 20 30 years on you can now say that that was actually when that woman came up to you and said you know this is it's real it's the real deal here <laughs> maybe that's, that's what she was trying to say right. that's exactly she I was basically just putting a piece of Staffordshire earthenware on my mother's kitchen table, and that was what Felicity saw. And so I was reimagining the, you know, I was giving it a new form, but but it wouldn't have been anything without the skills and traditions that went that were behind that. that were and almost anyone may be listening, thinking, because, you know, just ideas were popping up as you were talking about people that I know is, you know, what is there out there? Go and explore. Absolutely. Go and, look. Go look and see what are the skills and traditions. Yes, and look at the skills and say, right, this is a, you know, time gone by, but how could this create gravitas within my product within my business within my brand but just touching about if I may go there what was your experience as a young woman starting out in the 80s building a sort of multi-million pound business like because did you experience the sexism did you have any challenge I asked this because at the time there were very few role models out there I would say Laura Ashley Anita Roddick but there were very few few female business owners out there that you could almost aspire to or maybe you didn't even look at it like that because you didn't feel that you were an entrepreneur or a businesswoman but when you look back now do you see that you weren't surrounded by women doing it for themselves as I said you know you've got Laura and Anita but who else Uh, it's funny isn't it I I can't really pin this down I I partly really enjoyed the sort of anonymity. I think as a woman working, and you know, I was scurrying around in Stoke-on-Trent, finding supplies of boxes and brushes and colours and whatever. I think the innate casual sexism that is still a feature of all of our lives. I mean, you know, Stoke is is quite unreconstructed, but actually it worked in my favour. It just, I was below the radar. They didn't really notice and they assumed if they thought about me, I guess, that I was a runner for somebody else, you know, for for some bloke who had some business idea. And I never really cared. I think that I was simply aware, I've often been aware of it since, and and this is a predominant, I mean, this is a company that employs more women than men, despite having a manufacturing base. Um, women are better at stopping and asking for directions when they're lost in the car, famously. Well, I was lost in my car 
most of the time. But I, I didn't find it at all difficult to stop and ask for directions. And as a woman, I think if, you, if you're not using that to your advantage, if you're not finding that beneficial, there's something odd going on in your life. In that I came of age in the 70s and I had a very strong sense that feminism had, you know, we'd won the field. We were equal. I went to the kind of girls' school, girls' day school in Oxford, where we were all expected to be kind of to play our part. And there wasn't any idea that we weren't every bit as good as our brothers. And it isn't until you have a baby when it really hits you that you're in a very different situation to any that your brother's ever going to find himself in. All those early years, I just was a person, I think, in my own head a lot of the time. And then when I hit a tr trouble, I would do a kind of quite a conscious flirty, oh gosh, can you, I'm being so stupid about this. Can you help me? And it, it felt like in most situations an advantage. There were times, you know, a lot of times went broken down with a, you know, very, very, very cheap hired van beside the motorway in the rain and the winter and the dark when I slightly thought, why am I doing this? This isn't a very nice place to be. And, you know, through the years I've done an awful lot of mileage on my own in my car and, you know, some sort of lonely bits that don't, suddenly then you think this is weird that I'm doing this. I remember checking into a travel lodge one on the M1 one night at one o'clock because I stayed to see the kids. I'd left Norfolk very late. I arrived somewhere in the Midlands at one in the morning and the, as I checked in, the man said, what are you doing out on your own now? I mean, you're not in a nasty way. And I staggered up to my room and collapsed into bed thinking, what on earth am I doing? I mean, it is odd mm. where business mm. propels you. Mm. Completely. It, it, you know, a lot of it is quite hard and lonely. But it's, it's interesting because, you know, when we we think about the younger generations coming up and, and I still think we've got a long, you know, we've come so far, but still, as you said, when you become mothers, you know, you do realise we've still got a long way to go. You know, and listeners of this podcast know that I often highlight the disparity between men and women starting businesses. And if you women started businesses at the rate of men, within three years, we would have pumped in 250 billion into the economy. And yes. only one in three UK entrepreneurs is female in 2017. 5.6% of UK women run their own businesses compared to 15% in Canada, 11% in the US and 9% in Australia and the Netherlands. This is research conducted by Alison Rose for the Rose Report. And she is the first female CEO of any bank in the UK. And she's the CEO of NatWest. What do you think we can do to empower more women? When I when I say those sort of stats, are you? It's quite shocking, isn't are it? You, are you quite shocked that we're still sitting in these places? I didn't realise. I mean, I I I had I was aware of that, and I had I don't know it hadn't, hadn't registered with me quite how badly we score. I seem to have had a very clear awareness that my early twenties was my time, that I I did hope I would get married and have lots of kids, and I did have some intimation that that if I could establish myself, I mean, it turned out I had about five, four years before I met Matthew, three years before I met him, four before we got married, something like that, that that was, a, that was crucial, precious time. And I'm interested when I hear people say, oh, you know, I don't know, but I'll just, you know, see what happens. I think for girls there is, you kind of, you maybe have to calculate the odds a bit and be aware that... Plan it a bit. Yes. And the, the school, university and aftermath. But you really need to focus then on yourself and your time and what are you 
wanting to do? What do you want to... How are you going to come out of, of, of the hurly-burly of family life with something to, to kind of get on with? And I, I had a, a, a naive and but a very huge conviction that, that if I did what my father had done and start a business, then that would have some momentum perhaps by the time I was having children. And of course, it's much more complicated than that. But that's that's yeah. kind of borne in, out, in, and in, I would like sort of women to think about sense, that, isn't it? In mm. the basic sense of um, a lot of guests on this podcast have talked about those times where the least pressure in terms of financial pressures and family pressures and mortgages and overheads. You know, you you, you slightly need to live those years. You don't quite realise how precious they are. Uh, I think uh, until you you look back at them that you can build something in that time that that mm. can be your sort of foundation. And then, yes, you might have a family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you might work through that. All those sorts of things. But you've got something for you. You've got something that and you've established. You don't need to start a business in that time, but you do. That is your time. That is very, very precious time in which to and a sort of establish yourself in your own mind. And I think I, I was watching my mum enter the menopause, I guess, at that time. And I knew it was going to be tough. And and her, you know, because she got married very young, she was 20, I think, when she had me, 21, something like that, and managed to sort of spread her childbearing years over 20 years. I could see her dreading the end of that and and wondering what came next and thinking, I I would like something to hold on to then. Actually, the truth is, that's going to be awful. (laughs) There's, there's There's not much insurance policy for that. You're just going to have to work that one out when you get there. Whether you've got a business or a career or something or other, it doesn't really matter. So perhaps it, the most important thing is that that time before you take on the burdens of life and the excitements and the responsibilities and the distractions, knowing yourself, finding yourself in that time, establishing some, some wills and won'ts, I, I think is pretty jolly useful. Something that we've touched on before was this the the love of your mother and the and and it, and you have also described some wonderful highs um of your business and but I know you've been so honest with your business and your personal journey that you've really had some difficulties and tough times that you've survived. You said your mother, as you said, was your ultimate inspiration and you decided that your business was almost around her. You know, if you could picture it within her home, this was what was right, the kitchen dresser in mind. and that this was, She was the touchstone. She was that touchstone. And you had a terrible moment in 1991, seven years into running your business, where your mother suffered brain injury after a riding fall um, and she lived for another 22 years with these injuries which must have been so incredibly difficult for you and I speak to so many businesses who go through tragedy whilst being a freelancer or running their own business but there is something in this business this sort of obsession this thing that keeps you going keeps you sort of um uh, functioning keeps you mm. waking up in the morning and 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 living and 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 working it through. Does that touch on anything that you went through? And and what was this time like for you? Um, I mean, first I'd say that I think that a, a big challenge, a terrible tragedy in your life, is a kind of terrible and humbling event, and it connects you with the millions of other people who've been through terrible things and. You know, I talked about the kind of um, the essential transaction that's going on if you sit down with two mugs of, and a teapot, whether it's with your mum, your best friend, your sister. I think 
what we all need in life is connections. And having lost mum, I realised in a strange way, it really, it opened this extraordinary floodgate for me, for my siblings. But what I have found is I've spent a lot of time having incredibly deep personal conversations, often with total strangers, because they collect the pottery and because they know that it is about sitting and talking together that you survive Mm. these extraordinary challenges. There is only one way, which is onward. And of course, it was much less the business that kept me going than my kids and my husband and and my siblings. And I think for some time, business was something of a fog. I mean, it, we, it was such a difficult time and we had to dig so deep to sort of get through it. And it went for so long as yes, well. Yes, so long. So long. I became a complete expert in care home assessment and visitation and... Well, the children, you know, went through hell in, in that they spent a lot of time um, aware. I mean, coming with me to see her and yes. her life was very, very, very sad and reduced. It's just it's sort of extraordinary, isn't it, where life takes you. The bad bits are are deeply, deeply testing. And I think what I found was was this this very, very, very moving connection that's made some sort of very fundamental openness between me and a lot of my customers. I find myself having very, very, very impassioned emotional conversations often in those queues at after you know you've done a talk or been you know done an interview or something. And that feels like an enormous privilege and you know, to be human is to suffer, isn't it? There's bad bits. I think what's so touching and magical as an outsider looking in is how much your mother has influenced you, her style, her way of life, her enthusiasm, her energy, and and how it's all transferred to you and this manifested into this business. And you turned your memories and, and that happiness from being in your mother's kitchen and her mismatched dresser and combined that with your love of food and your talent for words and your passion for quality and design and created this iconic brand that we see today. And it's incredibly inspiring for us. And when what's so interesting in this podcast is listening to you and and how you know, you've had decades of of this business. And when I talk to small businesses coming up and I talk about heritage or skill or craft, I also talk about the human side. What has been in their lives? You know, what is their equivalent of your mother for them? What is tragedy in their lives and how that isn't used in any horrible way, but is the connection of the humanness. And you created a brand that is just emotional from the fact it connects us from the cup of tea that we have together, but also so many other things. And I just think it's just uh, incredibly inspiring that that is what your brand is. And and it's so much more than what it could have been, but that that's what you've brought to the table. Well, you know there's that sort of rather grotesquely overused um, word, passion, You'll have so much more fun with and commitment to your business if at the heart of it there is some 
passionate connection. And you won't know all about that at the beginning, but if you feel a real commitment to what you're doing, a real mission within it, that doesn't half help keep you going through the bad times. I don't think I'd still be doing this. I think I'd have sold the business a long time ago if I hadn't taken on the factory. I, I think if it was just a, if it was a, a sort of rather, and we could have been a really lovely studio in London designing and marketing and trying to put heart essentially into a more heartless product. I don't think I'd have stuck with it. I know that the challenge and the fun and the kind of messy f- frustration. Soul of it. The of, soul. Yes. The kind of reality of the factory. That's what's kind of kept me going. And that's, I'm proudest of that and most excited by that in the end. So trying to, to, to sort of figure out what happens next and how to make the brand travel on, you know, when I'm not involved in it any longer is now my most, I mean, I'm really, really interested in that. Well, I I had a couple of last questions was one, when I sit around these amazing designs today here, which none of you listening can see, and it's also top secret, um, (laughs) is the fact that when do you decide, you've had so many designs and patterns and you have collaborated with amazing people, the royals, you were the first personalised mugs, you know, I mean, you really are the, um, the guru of it all. Tell me when you know a design has finished. Because, you know, so many people listening are designers, they've got products, when do you say goodbye to something? Oh, and is it okay to keep something for forever green? Okay, you will make up your own rules for this, and some of it's a it's a parley, it's a negotiation with your your commercial team. So new designs will always be vitally important. But having promulgated the idea that nothing need match, it's also really important to know that China isn't clothing. It does, it might potentially rather thrillingly last forever or for thousands of years or whatever. And so there's got to be some continuity as well. And so we and so we play one off against the other. And what we're labouring for in the studio all the time is always recognisable and familiar and cosy and lovely and always fresh and new. And that squaring that circle is a great kind of continuous challenge. And the fact that it's not formalised. No. Because exactly that point, it's about the feeling. And a lot of the words that you use through this interview, and again, just highlighting it, it feels like that. You know, and this is so much when we we look at that, you know, that business plan and those things, I say to people, but it's about what your heart is telling you. It's about the unexcelable. You cannot put it in an Excel spreadsheet. It's the it's the hearts and minds. And it's actually sometimes the friction of someone thinking one thing, you thinking the other. That creates the third dimension that you could never have done by yourself. So it's there's so much of this interview that I applaud because it is hopefully giving people courage in that sort of um, the feelings that they have to their business. And it's as good as a fantastic looking P&L. You know, it's those magical parts that you bring to the table that are really the substance of a business. Don't you think, and this could be the lover of words in me, don't you think that there's a huge, huge value in trying to help somebody to describe in crazy detail what they imagine their working life is going to be. Where are you going to be doing this? What's your business going to be like? What's the building like? Walk me in. What do you wish your working life was going to be? 
to me, it feels that if you can describe what you long for, what you want to achieve, you are on the way. Mm. And a business plan is a potential betrayer because when you've got all those figures to, to balance up and it looks like you're going to make a decent profit, you can kind of seduce yourself into thinking, right, now we know what we're doing. But the figures are nothing unless you know what what's the visualization. What's the, is. Yes, what's the vision? What what is the actual story to get you to that that profit at the end of your endeavours or at the end of the year? Because obviously, <laughs> the end of the year never really comes, does it? You're always on the um, and also you escalator. Know, let's let's be honest. That business plan was seeing you be a millionaire within the first two years. Hell right? yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, every single business plan I ever had, I was like, yeah. my first company was a wreath business. You know, I was going to make Brussels sprout. We wreaths, love Brussels sprouts. You know, 2002, I was going to be a millionaire. It didn't quite happen. But imagine it. Not yes, the product is. One thing that's very important. So I think what happened to me was when I got to Stoke, I was looking at those trashed Victorian factories. It was obvious to me what I was going to strive to achieve, which was to get the lights on and the windows cleaned and yeah, that you... place shining and with people rushing in and out and, and happy customers arriving. And once you can see that, you are immediately on... On the way. I mean, on yes. The way. But, and, and, and suddenly you've got a bit of a magic carpet, I think. And in the rest of one's life as well. I think it's a really hard exercise sometimes. Sometimes but the vision fails well, and you tread water for a bit. I thoroughly believe in visualisation. Mm. You know, I sometimes have to be reminded which year it is, you know, just because I, I can see, I, you know, I really <laughs> love seeing what the future yes, is. Yes. We're coming to the end of this interview and I use the analogy that running your own business is an epic roller coaster. You would have a probably a lovely mug in hand um, sitting in your cart. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows on this journey? I think I'm really, really lucky in that I don't get stressed about the business. I mean, you know, we've had some sort of rocky times, but I, the way I'm made, I tend, I seem to kind of, it is that vision thing. I kind of can see my, myself out the other side. The business hasn't really ever faltered. You know, there've been periods in my life probably coping with keeping enough energy going into the business after mum's accident. And over through those years was that's when I think about the weight of that, that feels bad. I could imagine. I and can... and we haven't talked about family. And I, in a way, I kind of, we've talked about my mum a lot as if I didn't have, if I wasn't a mum myself. And I would also say, inevitably, if your business is a success, you can't put it aside as much as you want to. And you will forfeit time with your kids, sort of inevitably. And one of the tough things is having to find a way to be okay with them being looked after by other people, your mother-in-law, you know, wonderful au pair, and knowing that they really do love that person as much as they love you in the moment, because that person is dealing with their needs and you're not. And at the time, you just kind of think, I've got to do this. Afterwards, it does sometimes feel as if you made... I, I feel sometimes if I made my children pay with my absence and I feel that that's a pity, you know. There's Do they a, feel that though? Oh, I think sometimes, yes. I mean, God knows they're resilient and, and amazing. But I think there's real pain for every single working woman in squaring that circle of, of feeling guilty at work that you're not being a good enough mum, guilty at home that you're not 
being a good enough boss. And that's, I don't know how we actually change that. There isn't. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. Where I've come um, to get peace with this whole situation is the fact that um, we're building amazing younger generations where they are watching the real McCoy. They're watching what it means to run their own business. And when we look at the future and the fact that many people will have their own brands, they will be freelancers. When we look at all those things, we're going to need so many human skills of resilience, of of building businesses, building what is your diamond? What are you going to do in your world? I look at my son who's 14 and started his own little business. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think if I hadn't been doing what I was doing, he wouldn't be who he is either. So it's it's that thing. And, and don't women just are riddled with guilt, whatever we do, quite frankly. I think that's probable. <laughs> you know, but it is a difficult one. And conversely, tell me about a high that you would say was when you were at the top of the roller coaster with wind in your hair, tea flopping <laughs> everywhere. What would be a great high? Oh, very conventionally, peculiarly, the... Uh, we've had several royal visits, but I think the, when the Prince of Wales first visited, it was so much more exciting than we'd anticipated. And Socon Trent is a hotbed of republicanism and they were prepared to be underwhelmed. And the great thing was how, what pleasure. It, it seemed that it kind of... Lifted. Yes, we all just flew. It was very, very exciting. It's hard as an entrepreneur, isn't it, to... To, take, to ever stop and look around and see what you've done. And I guess that's probably the first time I did. I find it very, you very difficult. You smelt the roses at that point. Just briefly smelt the roses, then on. <laughs> the <next laughs> then you were like, come on, chop, chop. Yeah. <laughs> We've got work to do. <laughs> that, exactly. And, and I think entrepreneurs do suffer from a kind of inability to... Save praise the themselves and, yes. say, and stop and 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 have a look around. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I am savouring this moment, though. I'd just let you know that. Um, yes, and you. could me you too. tell me someone who's inspired you that you think maybe I could interview for this podcast? Oh, good idea. Um, I think you should talk to Sarah Raven. She's really interesting. Her backstory doesn't in any way hint at the very, very lovely career she is having as a gardener. Um, she has a lovely catalogue, inspired, inspiring, beautiful, and we'll make sure that whatever size your garden is, it's the best it could possibly be. And she's been be. going for many years, hasn't she? Yes. Well, thank you very much for that recommendation. Well, it's a special moment for me, this interview. So thank you very, very much. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your experience. I'm sure you have many battle scars from your 35 years building your business to scale. There's so much more that I'd love to talk to you about. And there's so much that can happen sort of behind the scenes that no one sees so many personal struggles so many difficult decisions to make and especially when your name is the brand and it it's even more personal but let me just say on behalf of me and female founders thank you for being a phenomenal role model for building such a british iconic beloved brand and reviving an industry and for just 
bringing joy to our kitchen table. You are an incredible woman and it's been an absolute honour in my career to interview today, honestly. It's that time at the podcast now where I will hand over to you. I know you've prepared a letter to your younger self. Yes. Um, I don't know what you're going to say and it's my exciting moment to listen. But for now, thank you, Emma, for sharing part of your soul. Oh, Holly, I you. feel... I feel overwhelmed. Thank you very, very, very much. And what a lovely, lovely opportunity you've given me to reach out to other people on the business journey. Because I think knowing whatever you're doing in life, good, bad, or incredibly dull, knowing that other people are doing that too, that you're never alone, even though it is the middle of the night and you jolly well ought to be at home in bed. There's all those other people striving alongside you, shoulder to shoulder. And so I'm honoured to talk to them. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Over to you. Letter to myself when young. Oh, my dear girl, you have such an enormous life ahead of you. It's going to be immense and you're going to need great resilience. So let me assure you that you are strong for the project. But this is, I think, my best advice to you on your 15th birthday. Please don't be too hard on yourself. My mum was right about everything, but she will never deliver the self-care lecture because that's not a thing in our family, is it? And that's a pity. Strong, self-contained people take less pain on board. Be one of them. Learn to take care of yourself and hold more of yourself back. And you won't know what I'm talking about quite yet, but find a way to get back home every day. Don't let stress build up in your body or in your heart. Do what it takes to get back to normal every day. Well, I don't remotely think you'll manage this or listen to this. You're very headlong and headstrong. But along the way, try and make a bit more space for larking about. And when I say hold yourself in, I'm talking about holding your own deep secret power more to yourself. Don't give it away. It's yours and yours alone. You're entirely entitled to it. Also, be a tiny bit more proud and appreciative of what you achieve along the way. But it's going to be a wild rumpus ride, so muscle up. And um, dodge the scissors. Grow your hair and avoid a hell of teenage bad hair days. And lastly, you're going to have incredible children. I urge you to spend all the time at home with them that you possibly can. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I know you, you feel like maybe through, you know, I've only just met you, but that maybe, you know, something that you weren't there with your kids. And I just, you know, for the sacrifice that you made um, to our benefit for all of us who you inspire. So um, thank you so much for your time and thank you for bearing your soul there. It was beautiful, <laughs> Emma. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode with Emma Bridgewater, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversations with designer and founder Jenny Packham. You can find any of my past episodes by searching wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. 
And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Holly.co.